This is an irreverent podcast. Check out irreverent.fm for shows from all our friends. Hello and welcome to Exvangelical. I'm your host, Blake Chastain. This week's guest is Alice Connor. Alice is the author of the book, Fierce, Women of the Bible and Their Stories of Violence, Mercy, Bravery, Wisdom, Sex, and Salvation. In this conversation, Alice and I start off talking a little bit about her background and then move quickly into nerding out about the Episcopal Church before launching headlong into a discussion of the women of the, women of the Bible that she profiled for her book. This is a great discussion that covers a ton of ground and I can't wait for you to hear it. As always, you can support the show via Patreon at patreon.com slash exvangelicalpod, and also by rating and reviewing the show on iTunes. I can't stress that that last one enough. Uh, please, if you do enjoy the show, please go and, and rate it on iTunes. Um, it helps more people find the show, and, and, and you, you all, my, the audience, are, are the marketing department here for Exvangelical. So any, any of those ratings and reviews will help boost the show's visibility and I would uh, just love it if you took a moment to do that at some point during your day. Um, also, if you'd like to join the Exvangelical Facebook group, just search for Exvangelical on Facebook. If you have any trouble finding it, you can let me know on Twitter. I'm at BRChastain on there. You can either at mention me or DM me. I'll, I'll get you hooked up um, and get you in there if you are unable to find the Facebook group for whatever reason. I have changed the... Uh, settings a little bit so you should be able to see it no problem um i did get a report from a couple people that had trouble finding it but please if you do have any trouble just reach out and let me know and i'll i'll help you get plugged in there also this past week i launched a separate feed called exv extras which can also be subscribed to separately in itunes this feed will include some shorter, more informal, and more experimental content that I've begun exploring on Anchor, which is an app I've mentioned at the top of a couple of other episodes. If you use Anchor, you can still find the show there by searching for EXV Extras on the Anchor app, but otherwise you can subscribe directly in iTunes. Um, I didn't have, I was on vacation last week, and I didn't have my recording equipment, so I went ahead and recorded a quick episode on Anchor last week and released it relative to Independence Day, etc. Um, so you can find that there and um, on Anchor as well as on the, on the iTunes and Google Play stores under the title EXV Extras. Alright everybody, I'm back from vacation and ready to get back to sharing great conversations with you. Let's get into this conversation here with Alice Connor. Hey everybody, welcome back to Exvangelical. This week I have with me Alice Connor. She is the author of the book Fierce, Women of the Bible and Their Stories of Violence, Mercy, Bravery, Wisdom, Sex, and Salvation. Thank you very much for joining the show, Alice. Hey guys, how are you, Blake? I'm doing great. I'm really glad we were able to um, we were able to connect you. Um, you're able to send a copy of the book, and I absolutely mm-hmm. loved it. So um, I'm really happy to to uh, be able to talk to you a little bit about it. And but before we get to that, I'd love to just learn a little bit more about you too. So sure. let's just start um, start just with your background, what where you grew up, all that sort of mm-hmm. fun stuff. Mm-hmm. Sure. Um, 
I grew up in a lot of places. <laughs> um, my father is a priest and my mother, uh, actually both my parents have, um, PhDs in theater and, mm. uh, but she was sort of getting various degrees as I was growing up. So we would move to one place for a church and then she would get a degree because they wanted her to whatever. <laughs> and so then we'd <laughs> move to a new place for her to get a job. So he would get a new job and then we move. So I moved around a lot is the upshot of that story. Uh, I was born in Oregon, lived in Kentucky, Tennessee, South Carolina, I think maybe a little bit in Indiana and, uh, now Ohio. So I'm from everywhere. <laughs> well, that's, that's great. So, um, <laughs> so you, what uh, denomination was your, was your father a priest in? Uh, he still is. He's retired. Oh, okay. um, but he, he and I are both priests in the Episcopal Church, uh, which is the American version of the Church of England. Mm-hmm. And what was that sort of church environment like growing up? Um, mm-hmm. I've, I have just recently started to attend uh, Episcopal services. So mm-hmm. that's, mm-hmm. that's very um, – I initially grew up Methodist, so it was like a pared, uh-huh. pared down version of it. Sure, sure. Of Episcopalian, uh, fallen Episcopalians, so. we call you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Our, our <laughs> guy, our guy was, our guy was booted. <laughs> so. Yes, he was a little bit, uh, kind of like Martin Luther. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, no, the Episcopal Church um, is what we call a liturgical church, uh, liturgy meaning the work of the people, but on the ground what that means is um, – sort of a more formal order to the worship service on a Sunday morning. Certainly it has uh, particular elements that are repeated in the same order each week, though the same could be said for a lot of evangelical churches, certainly that mm-hmm. I've been to. They yeah. wouldn't identify themselves as a liturgical church, but it still has the same elements. Yeah. Liturgical just means, um, well, it means what I just said it means. <laughs> <So> certain <laughs> things in a set order, yeah. uh, which are you know, sort of led by the people, even though it looks like it's led by the clergy up front in our fancy robes or whatever. Um, like I said, on the ground, it, it tends to look more formal, tends to look a little bit fancier, that sort of thing. Um, mm-hmm. and I really love that actually. Um, I really appreciate as a preacher, the lectionary, which is something that liturgical churches use, um, which is a three year cycle through scripture. Mm-hmm. Um, the idea is that if you go to church every Sunday over three years, you will, basically hear all the Bible. There's big chunks missing from it, uh, as I mentioned in my book. Um, <laughs> yeah. but, uh, but you basically get sort of the, the main story in three years. And I appreciate that as a preacher, because if it were up to me to choose what I was preaching on each week, I, they would be like, it's always Micah six, eight, or it's Jacob <laughs> wrestling the angel, or it's something nice and fluffy from the new Testament, right? Like <laughs> that's not helpful. I appreciate challenge that that offers me. And honestly, that's what I appreciate about the the liturgy itself is the challenge of it. Um, yeah. So that wasn't your question though. (laughs) That's all really good. And I'm, I'm really, I, because I'm, I'm such a, uh, I'm reaching neophyte and like a neophyte (laughs) into that sort of type of tradition. It's, it's very interesting to, to, to me to understand and learn bit by bit, um, what, what goes into all that? Because there is a lot of, um, there's a lot of thought that that yeah. has gone into the liturgy yeah. that, uh, and a lot of history. Yeah, and it's, it's not just that we're making it up and thinking about it each week. It's that like the the form of that worship has really been around since the beginning of the church. Right. Um, that I mean, if you look at the excuse me, the didache, uh, which is the the earliest. Um, very small document about early Christians that we have. Um, 
you know, it, it, it lays out the order of service, what the people, what the, the new Christians are supposed to be doing in their house churches. And it's what we do. <laughs> you know, yeah. we may have expanded on it here and there and made it more formal in various places, but we've been doing this for 2000 years kind of thing. Yeah. Um, and I, re- I really appreciate that connection to the history. Yeah. Um, so, and, and I, so to answer your question, what was it like growing up? I mean, I guess my answer might be similar to people in any tradition. I mean, it was what I grew up in, so I didn't right. really know any different. Right. But, <laughs> yeah. um, and I had a particular experience cause my dad was the priest. So I would be mentioned in sermons periodically and we had to sit in the front well, we didn't have to, but we often sat in the front row and, you know, yeah. <laughs> that kind of stuff. Um, yeah. And but not, I loved it. Yeah. That's good. Um, I mean, so, I'm, I'm so you liked, <laughs> so you liked being a PK too. And, and as far I mean, as all, I mean, I know that that has, so here's, I'm married to a PK. So I know okay. that that's like a, and m- one of my best friends is a PK. Like, I know that's a loaded thing. Like you, you have a very unique and particular view on the world and we like, do. and, and, and the experience of, uh, being a PK in a church is like, you you're like a participant and an observer. Like it's this yeah. weird thing. Well, and everybody that, knows you. I mean, that's, yeah, everybody knows who you are. Um, yeah. and you don't necessarily know who everybody else is. And you're um, like an extension yeah. of your parents. In a way. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I guess that's probably true for a lot of people in different situations, but yeah, I mean, perhaps, perhaps more than other people, we were seen as extensions of our parents. And, and mm-hmm. I don't, I don't have any memory of anybody judging my parents because of our behavior. Um, but I'm not sure my parents would have told me that at the time. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, so I, I just loved the Episcopal church growing up. It's it just, um, I'm, I'm not saying that I always loved being there. <laughs> um, <laughs> definitely, thing. you know, I still don't really care for getting up early on a Sunday morning for church. It's not my favorite thing. I'd rather have church at night, but, um, so, so, you know, as a child, I'm sure I rebelled against that. Um, <laughs> there were lots of bits of church that I didn't care for. Interestingly, um, part of this, this, uh, liturgical church experience is that you tend to have the same prayers over and over week after week. Um, the Eucharistic prayer, uh, the, the, the consecration prayer for the bread and wine is one that, um, we have four of them and they get sort of cycled through, uh, and they're called Eucharistic prayers, A, B, C, and D. Um, and, <laughs> I was just talking to my bishop a few months ago and I was like, Oh my gosh, like I've been working for Lutherans for eight years now and I love them. They're amazing. God, I miss Eucharistic prayer. A. I I never thought I would say that. <laughs> like I do though. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I, I, I mentioned, I'd, um, we were going, we've been going to an Episcopal church recently mm-hmm. and we went to a small group. Um, and one of the, one of the attendees was a, was a, a professor of liturgy, I think. (laughs) So he, he, he rattled off a couple of those prayers, like by memory, (laughs) like like he knew, he knew what, (laughs) which prayer referred to what, (laughs) like, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, you know, I probably could do that if given the, given a little bit of time, again, eight years out of the tradition, makes you forget things, but, yeah. <laughs> but yeah. you put me back in an Episcopal church and I can say it word for word. So sure. yeah, I mean, it's, and that's, I mean, that's part of the beauty of it, right? It's, it's that it doesn't change very often. Um, and so when you hear those words again, because you have heard them so often, there's like this immediate 
deep drop into a deeper space of contemplation and of prayer. Yeah. Um, you know, it's, it's like suddenly you you settle back in and go, Oh yeah, right. This is what this place is. Okay. I'm there. Yeah. Um, yeah, definitely. And uh, I, I love that. I think that there's something, um, if you're, I, I remember like I had some friends that were, uh, that when I went to my evangelical youth group, like it attracted some, some kids that were Catholic um, uh-huh. that went to Catholic church, but maybe like their Catholic church may not have had a youth group or what have you. Right. Um, and like I moved from a small town in Indiana where there are very few Catholics to Chicago land area, which has a ton. Um, but what I learned is that, um, you know, Catholics can, Catholics and Episcopalians and all these other high, high church groups follow lectionaries mm-hmm. and like you can walk into, um, and you have, and there are all these common practices and you can walk yeah. in literally walk into a church anywhere in the world <laughs> and like yeah. you'll know the you'll know the rituals you yeah. you won't feel necessarily lost like right. um, within the service or that sort of thing and um and that was like when I when I first learned that that was kind of enviable like yeah um there like certain even moving within the Methodist church from like a small town conservative one to a suburban, more loose or modern service. Mm-hmm. Like there weren't any of those markers, um, yeah, which just, right. to, just like sort of compare and contrast, you know, um, it was, it's definitely like, uh, uh thinking now as an adult and the sorts of things mm-hmm. that, mm-hmm. um, you you'd sort of want to be able to have a sense of familiarity. That's, mm-hmm. that's mm-hmm. a valuable thing. Um, it is. It's funny that you say that because um, I just came back a few weeks ago from a pilgrimage with some of my students and uh, we went to Germany and France and the the first full day that we were in Munich, we went, it was a Sunday. So we, we found a church that was right near our hotel and went, and, you know, none of us know German. I have three students who are studying German and none of them were on the trip with us. Uh, and so we went to this church, uh, no, no idea even what the tradition of this church was. Uh, and so we walk in beautiful space, just gorgeous sanctuary, sat down. Uh, we were like a minute late, unfortunately, but we sat down in the back and of course it's all in German. I mean, obviously it's Germany <laughs> yeah. and we sat there and we're like, I'm not sure how long we're going to stay cause we don't know what's going on, but we didn't know what was going on. I mean, we didn't know the specifics of the words. Yeah. But because of that flow of the liturgy, we knew exactly what was going on. Oh, this is the Old Testament reading. This is the New Testament reading. This is the Psalm. This is the gospel. Now he's preaching, possibly about fish. We weren't really sure. Uh, <laughs> you know, and, you know, we got to the prayers and the Eucharist. I mean, it was it was like we know exactly what's going on here. and We don't actually have to know the language mm-hmm. to be worshiping. Yeah. And to, to know what's coming. Yeah. Um, which I, th- I think for a lot of maybe historically people thought that it would be good to that was too conformist, but I feel like <laughs> like we right. we've we've cycled back where like yeah. that part yeah. of that that comfort that's like a comfort now that allows yeah. you to do your own thing, which uh, it's just in, <laughs> to yeah. me like well, again it's it's just like I'm a neophyte, so it's like it's very interesting. Right. <laughs> like, I, when you, um, started going to this Episcopal church, um, mm-hmm. have you been doing like newcomer classes or confirmation classes or anything like that? Um, like to get a sense of what's going on. We, uh, we went to a, what was like a pre Lenten retreat. And so, uh-huh. our, um, our rector, she did, 
what was sort of like a guided Eucharist. Um, okay. So she sort of broke down what it what it means when when things like passing the peace and the the what that means is like you know, and this was shortly after the election. So she was emphasizing like um, when I say peace, it means like you. And it doesn't matter that we disagree on this thing. Like, right. Yeah. Yeah. And like this, this piece, it, it, it extends beyond that. And yeah, yeah. Um, like she's, she's very much, she's getting her demon. Like she's, mm-hmm. she's studying like the catechumenate and all these different things that are really cool. <laughs> like, yeah. and she's, and she's very um, open and very helpful in being, telling you this sort of instruction and, yeah. and what that all is supposed to, what it's what it represents yeah Um, so sort of in in where i am personally like that's been really really wonderful that's great yeah yeah yeah. so because it because it really helps to um have have that um have that sort of presence especially Mm -hmm. when when you're new to something so yeah yeah for sure yeah so we're we're very fortunate in that regard i was wondering because one of the and obviously this is oversimplifying, but one of the, the ways we talk about the Episcopal Church is that we are um, about common practice, not common belief. Mm-hmm. Um, thus, you know, you might read the Nicene Creed or the, Episcopal, the um, Eucharistic prayer or anything, and kind of everybody in the room is going to have kind of a different experience of what that means and what it's calling them to and all that kind of stuff. But we're all there for doing the same thing. And yeah. similarly, across the world... Um, you know, we all follow the same order and, and many of the prayers are the same across countries and it's the practice being present yeah. and practicing the faith, <clears throat> excuse me, um, that similarity is what ties us together. Even though, even, even if we, you know, put three liberals in a room, we three conservatives in a room, doesn't matter. They're all going to disagree with each other about something. Right. Yeah. So we just sort of recognize that. And say, yeah, that's, that's just who we are as human beings. What we, what ties us together is our common practice. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think that, that, that is an, um, a huge sort of insight of, of that, of that, of the Episcopal church really. Um, yeah. because I love how this is becoming a marketing, uh, <laughs> podcast for the Episcopal church USA. Yeah, this is just, a, yeah. <laughs> you I mean, all check this, it out. It's great. This is, <laughs> I, I haven't really, you know, I haven't really talked about this on the show really, as far as like my sort of, um, I, my sort of experience of, of sort of where, where I am right now. And, and mm-hmm. the fact that I'm even attending church, like, um, but anyways, like I, I do think, um, for, for me, uh, it's part of a, you know, a formative thing and sort of healing thing to be in a sort of an environment that does allow that. Um, yeah. because other, um, the church we went to before, I mean, it, it was much more about sort of policing your beliefs. Like, you know, mm-hmm. you better stay in line. Like, um, right. we, we left because we were egalitarian, like all this, uh, you know, all this stuff. Um, anyways, like it's been really, it's been really wonderful to be in a, um, in a, in a place that, that allows that. And I think that speaks primarily to the community and where we are. Like, Mm -hmm. I'm not going to prescribe that for everyone. uh, (laughs) Like everybody's (laughs) got their own thing. Um, everybody's in a different place and the whole thrust of the show is, is that you know yeah. you're, you're okay wherever you are? Like, yeah, Jesus met people on the way. That was yeah. his whole shtick. So yeah, yeah. And even if even if the word Jesus triggers you right now, then like mm. don't mess with it. Like right, right, it's right. It's fine. 
Um, but but um, one thing I did want to mention about that sort of common belief that I think is or common practice is um, something that I actually read in a book. In the book, uh, I'm going to butcher his name because I get it wrong every time. Uh, Living Buddha, Living Christ by Thich Nhat Hanh, I think. Oh yeah, was. yeah, he's great. Yeah, he he talks about like he he talks about and he's a Buddhist and he recognized that there's a lot of common practice between the Buddhist tr- tradition and the Christian tradition. And in one of the final chapters, the one of the, the the two main things I took away is he says mindfulness is the Holy Spirit. That's one thing yes. he says, and then the other is um, uh, that to to not like necessarily chain your chain yourself to a belief, the because your beliefs will change. But if you maintain your practice, then the practice yes. is what becomes formative. Yes. Um, yes, and that is like. For if you come from a background that emphasizes beliefs, that's like that sh- shifts everything. Yeah. <laughs> I like that turns turns everything on its head, really. Um, yeah, yeah. But it's more consistent with human experience. So here we yeah. are. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's exactly right. I yeah. was just thinking that I have I have a couple students who are neuroscientists, and they would they would say that's exactly what the neuroscience is. Um, yeah. is that, that our that our practices shape us. Our practices shape our beliefs. Right. Yeah. Which yeah. is which is you know in such a polarizing world where everything's about your belief, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. especially like politically now in the climate we're in, it's like yeah yeah you got to wear your beliefs on your sleeve and all this other stuff right. Um, but but anyways, um, <laughs> so I've uh, so you just to get back a little bit to your biography and, and part yeah. of that just to sort of get uh, work our way up to your book and everything. Um, so you enjoyed. Um, you, you said you were a church nerd. You, you just yes. liked, uh, <laughs> and when I look to the side here, I'm looking at my notes just to, <laughs> yeah, that's fine. um, um, you enjoyed, you enjoyed church. Did you go, did, did you go to college and that sort of stuff with the intent mm. of studying theology yeah. or did, or Absolutely was this, not. okay. <laughs> it was, <laughs> No, I mean, I, I felt a, a little bit of a call to seminary when I was in high school, but, um, I mean, who wants that job? That's horrible. I don't want that. <laughs> Um, I'm, I'm a, I'm a fabulous, free, strong woman. I'm going to do whatever the hell I want to do. So, um, I have a theater degree. I'm a costumer and particularly, and, uh, I have a minors in English and, uh, art studio art, mostly ceramics and art history. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, no, I, I did not want to do that. Uh, but by the time I graduated from college, uh, I was kind of burned out on the theater. Um, I realized that, it was very political. Um, and it, you can even take away the political part of it. It was very much based on who you knew. Um, if you wanted a job somewhere, you had to know somebody who would get you a job. Um, and that was exhausting to me. <laughs> yeah. not, not that I, I mean, I'm a pretty extroverted person, but I just, I wanted to be hired for being good at it, right. not for who I knew. Right. Anyway, I was exhausted by it. And so I was like, Nope, not doing that anymore. Um, and so my, fiance at the time. And I moved, uh, cause I got a job at a big fancy Joanne store, uh, where my parents lived and, um, they were paying me some ridiculous amount of money, which that's a whole other story. But anyway, um, <laughs> and, and so we moved up there and I had this job and fairly soon I sort of realized I don't want to be a costumer. I'm not sure what I want to do. And this call came back and I was like, Oh shit. Okay. <laughs> um, so, I 
chose to go to this Episcopal church. I mean, I never really gave up the Episcopal church. I always loved it. And so I chose to start going to this church that was on campus at OSU, um, St. Stephen's Episcopal. And, uh, it was the first church that I chose to go to myself, really. Like I, I said, I'm, I'm going to go to this place. And probably second or third Sunday I was there, I stood up at the announcements. They're very casual. They're, they're very liturgical, but very casual as well. Mm-hmm. And I stood up at the announcements and said, hey, I think I want to go to seminary and I'm new, so we should get to know each other. <laughs> <laughs> they were very kind and loving and they shepherded me through the process. And here I am. <laughs> wow. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm, then- I'm honestly not sure if it had been... Well, I mean, that's probably true for everybody. I was going to say, I'm honestly not sure this would have happened if anything had been different, right? If if I'd gone to a different church, if we'd had a different bishop at the time, I mean, anything could have changed this. Sure. So. Yeah, all that stuff that could be happiness to ants or, (laughs) yeah. Right, right. Absolutely. Um, So after seminary, have you, you've been in ministry basically ever since? Like that's just been, uh, okay. Yeah. 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 Um, no, I, I was at a, um, a church. I, I live in Cincinnati and I was at a, a, a big Episcopal church. Um, what we call a Cardinal parish it means they're well-resourced, but also, I don't know, historical. I don't even know why I brought that up. Anyway, uh, <laughs> I worked at this church as a youth minister for mm-hmm. four years. Uh, and they really formed me from being a baby priest to, I don't know, an adolescent priest anyway. Um, it's not sort of, to extend the metaphor, maybe a college age priest. I don't know. I mean, I was in my twenties, but, um, you know, kind of, they, they really shaped me and formed me into being who I am. I mean, everything does, but they really stuck with me and taught me how to do this. Um, yeah. And then, then I uh, had my first baby and I went to, um, change to campus ministry and I've been there for eight years. Um, and it's, it's great. <laughs> it's, it's with Lutherans who I adore. Um, so, you know. Great. Yeah, that's cool. Um, Let's, let's actually, if you don't mind, let's just start diving into your book. There's a lot. No, we will not talk about that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm kidding. Yes, of course we'll talk about that. Yeah. Um, so I, I just, like I said, I, I really, really enjoyed your book. Um, I want to sort of narrow, I want to talk about a, a few of them. What you, the way you have this book structured is, is, is each chapter is, is dedicated or focused on uh, at least usually one or two um mm-hmm. one or one or two women yeah um and the book is explicitly just all about the women in the bible and um i think it just to just to preface it a little bit i the the way you your your prose is very honest your prose is very like very very casual in a lot of ways like mm-hmm. and also just very um but I, I just really like this book. It, it's really hard for me to even just articulate it. And, um, <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> yeah. So, um, so I, I really do just one of the sort of, one of the sort of themes that I thought we could kind of focus on throughout these stories and I'm not going to force a theme. So don't, if I'm, 
You you know these stories much better than I do. You're the one that wrote the book on it. No apologies. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, but one a, a couple of the things that that really stick out to me throughout these throughout these these um, stories is women finding a way th- finding a way to exert power and exert their own agency within systems that were yeah. were against them, and also mm-hmm. how they did that within sort of the scope of um, justice. Uh, and yeah. so in particular stories like Susanna and others, mm-hmm. um, and I want, I do want to start with some of the, um, some Tamar actually, mm-hmm. am I, am I saying that right? Tamar? Yeah. I yeah, yeah. yeah. Cause I think that's a very interesting example of a woman that, um, she, she was credited righteousness for something that, that seems a little ethically slippery. Like, right. So, right. Um, I'd love to hear you, you sort of you sort of hear you talk about it. What you take sure. take a take away from her story? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting you say it that way because um, she brings up for me sort of how we talk about saints in the church. Um, you probably often hear people say, "Oh, they have the patience of a saint," or "Oh, you're just you're just a saint." And I think about the stories of the saints that I've heard, and and some of them are like that. A lot of them really aren't. Like a lot <laughs> of them are kind of douchey. Um, they're just not necessarily nice people. And that's, that's perhaps a, a a side note or a rabbit trail is that a lot of Christians, a lot of us believe that being a Christian, being a good Christian is about being nice. Yeah. Um, and certainly a lot of people outside the church think that's what we're supposed to be. Like Ned Flanders. Yeah. Right. Exactly. And, and, and so then they get frustrated when we're not, that's complicated. Just like I said, it's a side, (laughs) side note. Um, (laughs) We're not called to be nice, right? We're called to be faithful. And sometimes being called to be faithful can look rude or or odd, right? Anyway, so when you say somebody has the patience of a saint, it's like, well, but which saint are you talking about? I mean, St. Augustine, (laughs) like which part of his life are you speaking of, right? Um, St. Thomas Aquinas, whatever. Yeah. Uh, You know, Martin Luther isn't a a saint, he was really anti-Semitic. I'm sorry, Lutheran friends, but like, oh yeah, you know he's really yeah. great in a lot of ways. And in other ways, like, oh my God, dude, no, and he you hated were a poor man people. of your time. <laughs> I wish you hadn't. Anyway, yeah, he um, hated poor people so, too. <laughs> right, exactly. So, so for Tamar, uh, I, I guess it's not even. There's the specific. Sorry, I've lost my lost my language all of a sudden. Uh, for Tamar there's the specificity of her story. Like this is about her, right? She, she's got this kind of odd story, but it's not just her. There's lots of people in scripture and lots of us who have these lives that are more complex than just good and evil. Mm-hmm. Right? That's, that's those categories are too simple yeah. to encompass what our lives are actually like. So yeah. So for Tamar, um, her whole thing is that, you know, she was she was married to two different sons of Judah. Yes, that Judah, um, and each one died while she was married to her, to them. And so Judah was like, "I'm not marrying her to a third son. Like, clearly something's going wrong here. She may not be killing him, but my sons are dying. So nope." <laughs> yeah. Which makes sense, right? Like, except that, um, according to their law, she was entitled to marry the next brother, and. In addition to that, at the time, a woman's worth was only based on the number of male children she could create. If she's not married to anybody, she is worth nothing. 
So she's in this liminal space where she has no worth, no value. She is, in fact, a burden on her family because she had to go back home to them. Um, and she's waiting to be married to the next son because he's too young. And she, at the time, didn't know that Judah had said she couldn't marry him. But eventually, the son is old enough. She's not married to him. And she's like, what the hell, dude? And she knows what is just in this situation. She knows both legally what is just, but also sort of existentially what is just. She is owed this husband. And so she dresses up as a prostitute, which is the part that we find kind of awkward. <laughs> Actually, that's, I should say that's part one of what we find to be awkward. She dresses up as a prostitute and she seduces her father-in-law who apparently doesn't recognize her. Judah. Um, and it's a, it's a fantastic story. It's like sort of one of these like legal mumbo jumbo things. Like he says, Oh, I'll give you a sheep, but I don't have it right now. And she's like, <laughs> okay, well you got to give me some sort of collateral. He's like, all right, well I'll give you my like staff and my cord. It's like my driver's license, my passport. She's like, great. I'll take those. They have sex. She leaves. Uh, he does the right quote unquote right thing. He sends the sheep back or goat or whatever it is. Um, and the people in the town say, we, there's never been a prostitute at that gate. We don't know what you're talking about. So that's awkward for him. <laughs> I was like, all right, well, that was weird. Whatever. Uh, but then, horrors, his daughter-in-law is pregnant, but she's not married to anyone. How could this be? She must be stoned. So he calls to have her stoned. And she's like, great, fine. Want to know who the dad is? And he's like, yeah, I do. That's terrible. He's going to be stoned <laughs> too. And she's like, great. These are his. <laughs> he's like, oh, shit. <laughs> and and then and this is key he says not we're still going to stone you you are awful women must keep silence etc he says she is more righteous than I and she is in the genealogy of Jesus her child is in the genealogy of Jesus so that whole story it's so awkward so weird yeah. so according to sort of simple Christian modern standards, sinful. And yet righteousness is found in the midst of it. Like in a lot of ways, that's in a nutshell what scripture is. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's, um, again, that's what's so refreshing about your book in the way, um, when I said casual, it's really what, what I meant by that is like you, your lines like perpetual version, my, my yeah. ass and <laughs> things like right, that. Right, right. Like it's um, conversational. <laughs> yes. It's definitely conversational. Um, but the, the other, the other thing that I, that I absolutely love, and this is, um, clear in the way you represent the story is that, um, these people are full fledged people. Like they're, yeah. um, they, there's not the sort of the spectrum, the binary of angel or harlot. Like, right, yeah. There's you know just a mixed up man, man or woman made out of clay. Like, like right, you're not, yeah, you're yeah. not. Um, uh, and and to me that that sort of humanity is something that somehow, uh, at least in like our American context, we definitely have sort of lost track of like the, yeah. the humanity in these stories. Like they're sort yeah. of dead on the page, and right. um, the way in which you retell them and you explore them like livens them up because, mm. uh, because that, uh, I mean, this woman was completely disenfranchised within the, yeah. like power and legal and moral and, and family systems of the ancient yeah. Near East. What's she going to do? <laughs> and right. So right. Yeah, did, absolutely. Yeah. So yeah, 
her her story like I, is I felt was very indicative of all these different places that people can fall through the cracks. Like she fell through yeah. lots, and then she found a way. Yeah. She she was clever, and she found a way to to leverage that. <laughs> yeah, and it's it's so interesting that like within her story, she fell through those cracks. And even though we have this extended story in the book of Genesis about her that various authors have kept over the years, right? Like it's, mm-hmm. we had it as oral tradition. We had it as written down story. We had it through revisions. Like this story has stayed and it's in Jesus genealogy mm-hmm. uh, in Matthew uh, or not that story, but she's listed there, right? Like, so we've got two citations of this that, People thought this was important, but we don't read this story. She's fallen through the cracks again. Like, why? Yeah. Like, literally, the scripture that we hold so highly holds her up as an example, holds her up as someone to remember, and we don't remember it. And if I sound angry right now, it's because I am. (laughs) (laughs) I'm often angry, (laughs) but, like, I'm particularly angry about this, like, we're— I'm not even reading in this particular story. I'm not even reading between the lines. Like it literally says she's more righteous than Judah. Right. And she's literally in Jesus genealogy. Something is important there. Yeah. And her story is not part of our lectionary. It's not part of most Bible studies for women. And who cares even if it's for women or not, it's not part of most Bible studies. People just don't know this story, men or women. Yeah. If we can talk about Ehud, Killing a fat guy with like right, which is a hilarious story. <laughs> but like, what does that tell you? Don't be fat. Don't sit on the potty. I don't understand this. Story. <laughs> it's more complex than that. Yeah, it's a yeah, very just, strange. Yeah, story. people know that story though. They don't necessarily recall this woman that's in the genealogy of Jesus, which right, is right. the injustice. I mean, I I wonder if. One of the reasons that we don't remember these stories, and I'm, I'm possibly making this up on the spot, is that maybe – okay, I'm literally thinking out loud. I am an extrovert. I shape my thoughts outside of my body, so I'm doing <laughs> That's this right. Totally, that's totally okay. I'm saying this. I'm not sure if it's entirely true, but I'm going to say this, and I'd be interested to hear what your listeners have to say about this. I wonder if a lot of these stories we don't – we have on some level chosen not to remember consciously or unconsciously. Um, because many of the women's stories are more difficult, more, um, well, I was going to say more messy, but then I, I think about like Noah's daughters having sex with him. Is that right? No, that's not Noah. Sorry. That was Lot. Lot. Yeah. Lot's daughters having sex with him after the destruction of Sodom and like, what? Which is, well, that's messy, except that then their children are like, quote unquote, the bad guys after that. So that's not as messy. All right. I really am forming this thought right now. Yeah. No, but <laughs> I'm, I... just, I'm just, I'm thinking about all the women I've written about and the ones that I didn't write about and how complex their stories are. Uh, and sort of like Tamar, they're not all the same, obviously, but like Tamar, you've got a situation that is on a lot of levels, kind of morally impure or morally awkward at least, but is still somehow represented as positive. Yeah. I, well, I think, I think the thing that, that, um, just having been your reader, um, yeah. the, the, the thing that I, I gathered from, from these stories is that 
in many ways they were forced to be impure. Mm-hmm. Like it was, right. it was not necessarily the thing in their heart that made them want to be evil or whatever, or to do malicious right. things. It was the fact that they were dealt a shitty hand. <laughs> like, right. Um, to, like, situation. What yeah. do I do with this thing that I'm existing in now? Yeah. Right. Like, so, um, one of the next ones is, is Hagar, you know, she, mm-hmm. she was in an, in another position where she, um, it wasn't, it wasn't just male. It wasn't just male, female. It was like, it was also a subservient level. Like mm-hmm. it was, a, mm-hmm. um, I, I can't remember. Is she a servant or was she a slave? Um, well, it depends on your translation, I okay. think. Yeah. yeah. Um, and how she was serving both Abraham and Sarah. And, yeah. You know, and then there's this whole dynamic with Sarah and, and all of this stuff. And, and again, like yeah. you, you emphasize that, that this woman was in a, is in, is in a position that is not very enviable. <laughs> like, yeah. Uh, she's in a sort of shitty position. <laughs> and then, mm-hmm. Um, but then as you, as you mentioned, she, she gives a name to God and mm-hmm. I mean, mm-hmm. who, am, who among us has, has done that? Yeah. <laughs> and it's and nobody I'm, else in scripture. Yeah. Yeah. She, uh, she was hard to write about too. Like actually when I've, when I've read that chapter aloud, which is not that often, um, the bit where she's out in the wilderness, I think it's the second time um, when she's been kicked out of her family. Uh, she's carrying, it, it's awkward because her son at that point, according to the text would have been a lot older, but you get the, you get the sense that he's small. <laughs> um, she's like carrying her baby or her toddler and she's been given a, a skin of water. And I, I said something like, you know, she's she's walking through this desert, the despair creeping in, and holding her holding her son and holding this water, the one getting heavier as the other gets lighter, um, and just how, oh, how awful that is. I mean, for any of us to contemplate the imminent death of our child, and our own, I mean, doesn't have to be the child, just our own mortality, and and how honestly, how many people are experiencing that right now? Like it's not, this is not a story that exists only in our scripture. It's, it has been kept and it speaks to us because we see it every day. Like think about the people leaving Syria, the people who have left Syria. I mean, all those pictures that we saw in the news of children washing up on the shore and the overloaded boats. I mean, it's, they are the Hagar of 2017. Um, it just breaks your heart. Yeah. And so what do we do with it? Right? Like she was dealt a particular hand and she had to do something with it. We are dealt a particular hand individually, but also as a culture, like this is what we have. What do we make of it? Yeah. <laughs> I, I don't yeah. have an answer. I don't have an answer either. <laughs> Just let that be a pregnant pause there. Like, it's just gonna. Uh, <laughs> yeah, absolutely.
again, sort of the one one of the other aspects that that you have here within some of the stories is this sense of um, erasure or for or or people being forgotten um, mm-hmm. or not being emphasized. However, you want to. Uh, yeah. However, all those all those different phrases have different connotations, but um, but they they sort of point to the same thing where. Yeah a woman's story has been de-emphasized for something else or has been forgotten on purpose or from neglect. Um, and that sort of comes to the forefront in the story, in a chapter you have about Asherah, um, which mm-hmm. I think is interesting for a number, a number of reasons. I, uh, first, first of all, I know like very little about how that factors into, um, you know, factors into like the mythology and ancient Near East belief that yeah. that sort of um, formed early early Judaism and everything. Um, so yeah. there's that, but then there's also um, how that how that applies to and the implications that it has for Judaism and Christianity now. Um, yeah. So I'd love to just hear you sort of talk a little bit about and actually give some background as to who Asherah is, um, mm-hmm. what what this goddess represented, and yeah. and really what the eventual sort of erasure or um, you know um, someone or her being retconned, like to use a comic book term, right. like she was retconned, you know, just like uh, Hal Jordan didn't kill everybody in uh, Zero Hour. <laughs> <clears throat> that was parallax. Yes. That was nice. That, that was parallax, okay? Oh my god. I have got to tell my husband that you said that. <laughs> He's going to be so okay. excited. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, Paranax, that's a whole different person. Anyway. Uh, so yeah, uh, Asherah is a really interesting character. And I, I recall, I think this is one of the people that my Old Testament professor in seminary said, you know, you can't this is not something you can talk about with your parishioners because they'll freak out. And she would say that a lot. And I was like, I love you. Why would you say that? Why wouldn't I talk to my parishioners about this? Why are we going to seminary if not to share this information? Yeah. This is crazy. Um, and I get why Asherah is awkward. Um, she, it's really interesting to me how many people have really been attracted to this chapter um, because her, her whole presence in scripture is really one of absence. That that's sort of the point of her in a lot of ways. Um, essentially, uh, like a lot of religions, um, but certainly in the ancient Near East, um, the the folks in that in that area started out as polytheists, so multiple gods, household gods, etc. Um, and they moved through a phase called henotheism, which means there's still lots of gods, but ours is the best one. And then, and that's like, that's essentially a lot of the early Hebrew scriptures is the henotheistic era as it's mm-hmm. moving into monotheism slash is revised by the people who became monotheists. Um, so it's, that's sort of the point is that she was there. Um, in fact, still is there, um, depending on your translation, it may say Asherah or it may say the Asherahs, like Gideon and various people are um, commanded to cut down the Asherahs. Or if you see something like the sacred poles, that's usually her. Um, it was either poles or it was like sacred groves of trees. Uh, it was very mm-hmm. sort of earth-centric religion. Um, and it's, it's, 
it's not just, oh, she was some, um, you know, heathen pagan goddess. Um, she was worshiped alongside of Yahweh. Um, there's, there's some historical evidence that she was sort of Yahweh's wife or at least consort. I mean, gods didn't really get married so much. They just had sex and made the world kind of thing. Um, so like, so she's very much in that, that school of things, right? If you look at Greek mythology and and you think of like Gaia and is it Gaia and Uranus? Yeah. Uranus. Boy, it's been a long time since I studied that. It's, it's similar stuff or, or in Egyptian mythology, I think it's, um, Isis and what's his face. Not the point. The point is that that you've got this like super ancient form of the way the earth is created and and how the gods interact with each other. And in the ancient Near East, and specifically in this sort of proto-Israelite culture, there was this goddess called Asherah. And she was called lots of things, Astarte and all kinds of things like that. Um, but later, as they moved into monotheism, there was this, oh, no, 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 we didn't actually worship her. No, 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 no. She was a false god. She was the god of the people who are not us. Uh, and all of our heroes actually got rid of all that stuff. Um, hmm. it's, some of it is – so, so it's, it's, a, it's a dual narrative. Some of it is uh, we are very righteous, so we're getting rid of all that worship of false gods. And the other part of it is, uh, oh, no, we never worshipped her in the first place. We can't have both. <laughs> <laughs> one of them. Um, anyway, so her story, and I and I do say this near the end of the chapter. I'm not like writing this chapter in such a way that we should bring back the worship of Asherah. She's pretty cool, but she also like demanded child sacrifice. Maybe Yahweh did too. Anyway, uh, we'll gloss over that for a second and just say I'm not I'm not asking for bringing that back. I'm saying her story suggests to us in a way that is really visceral. Um, we erase stories all the time. We erase people all the time. Um, and, and why do we do that? What is our motivation? What is, what is frightening about them? What is threatening? Um, you know, what, what about her story translates into 2017, which is true for all these chapters, but like her specifically, why are we erasing people? Yeah, and I think your 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 examples of that erasure are very evocative. You yeah. talk about um, uh, Stonewall, and mm-hmm. you talk about Henrietta Lacks, and mm-hmm. and a number of other people that are that were that were erased or forgotten, um, mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. yeah. Um, so so that is a, like a very evocative thing, and I think it does you know uh, pique people's interest because of that sort of. Um, yeah. otherness, I guess, like, uh, but, um, but, but yeah, that, I mean, that, that whole sense of, I, I think maybe just not being courageous enough to face your own history, <laughs> um, right. which, which like yeah. we're sort of confronted with all the time now, <laughs> um, well, Maybe. we are, and yet we live in a culture and in a, in a technological world where everything is so fast that, like, fact checkers can't keep up with the next thing. Yeah. Right? So, like, we can look back and say, oh, this happened and that happened, and we've already moved six cycles beyond that. Yeah. So it doesn't yeah. matter. Things get erased all the time, <laughs> even if we have clear evidence that they were real. Right. <laughs> That's... Yeah, there's, it just, there's too yeah, yeah. There's there's too many examples of that too. You're absolutely right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Hmm. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, I mean they, that's a that's the thing about that's the thing about your book. It just makes you, you know, tra- uh, makes you just think about any number of things. Mm-hmm. So just sort well, of yeah, just just you know, uh, just compels you to contemplate on like all sorts of different things. Yeah, I mean that's kind <laughs> of my hope. I, I've had people say to me before after I've preached, uh, you know, you you I wanted you to say more. I wanted I wanted more. Like you ended before you answered all my questions. I'm like I wasn't intending to answer your questions. Right. <laughs> I was yeah. intending to encourage you to ask different questions. Yeah. Um, and sort of that's how I feel about this book as well. Is, um. You know, I don't. I don't need people to agree with me. I, I say that in the introduction. It's it's okay, dear reader, dear well, not readers, dear listeners to Exvangelical. Um, <laughs> you know, if and when you buy this book or borrow it from a friend or whatever, and and read it, I don't expect you to agree with every interpretation that I have made of these women. I but I do hope um, that it will invite you to read these stories with the question, you know, oh what is another way I could look at this? Mm-hmm. Which I think is important, not just for scripture. I think scripture is obviously the basis of, of a lot of our faith, but um, I think this is really important politically. I think this is important, like in sort of the vat, the larger theological sense. I think this is important interpersonally that we tend to fall into scripts. We tend to fall into patterns of behavior, patterns of understanding. Um, I think this is how you are. Therefore that's how you are instead of being curious Right. Not defensive, right. but curious. How else could I imagine this? Mm-hmm. Right. Doesn't mean that the how else is the way there is no one way. There's lots of ways. Right. Um, but that but that requires you to realize that your way, my way is not the only way either. Yeah. <laughs> and that's hugely important for compassion and empathy. Absolutely. Yeah. And that's definitely the driving force of of this show is that. It's it's more about hearing someone's story, <laughs> like actually hearing it, yeah. Instead of and letting someone be descriptive of their own experience, yeah, yeah. Um, because that's the only way you you can become compassionate or like yeah. Yeah. understand someone. Um, yeah, I <laughs> I'm in rousing agreement with you. <laughs> like, <laughs> you know, so I'm I'm not. Yeah, there's nothing to debate there, in my opinion. <laughs> <laughs> I can bring some stuff up to debate if you need. Sure. Well, um, I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll definitely still ask you questions. I don't know if I'm yes. going to disagree with them <laughs> or like, or have that sort of conversation with you. Um, One of the things that I I haven't really um, haven't really addressed is that a lot we've we've talked more about sort of the gender politics of mm. of some of this as well as well in in Tamar and Hagar there's also uh, a number of things about sexual behavior and sexual politics and all that sort of mm. stuff and how it was supposed to be the you know the sort of high standards that high standards that they may have had even back then even if their own practices never you know, matched with their actual right. standards. Um, but then throughout, throughout the book, um, the, the other thing that I mentioned earlier about you having just full fledged people is that, that you, you don't do, I think you, at one point when you talk about Ruth and Ruth with Boaz, you, you have, you mention uh, the 
Breakfast at Tiffany's fade out. <laughs> like, yes. Like, you, you know, you know what happened after that. You like, know what happened. There. Um, but in this, in this, you like, I think some, some writers, especially in, with, with books like this may, their whole text may be the fade out. Like that might, might be right. just innuendo. Um, but, but you, you, you talk about the fact that these women have their own, um, sexual agency, yeah. uh, have, and also, at the same time, are threatened sexually, um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and that's present in a lot of different chapters. Uh, or one of them being Susanna, where it literally is a legal yeah. trial, <laughs> a legal trial um, about um, about being accusations of rape, essentially, and yeah. accusations of a woman being unfaithful. Um, mm-hmm. So I mean, there's there's so many different avenues and different different ways um, to approach this particular topic within your text, um, mm-hmm. from Song of Songs or from Susanna, mm-hmm. um, or from really pretty much any element of a, of a chapter, um, mm. because it is because that is in- integral to both men and women. So why wouldn't yeah. it belong? Um, right. Um, I just kind of want to leave it up to you and 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 let you sort of explore. Uh, I think Susanna is a great example of of this, um, but then it's it's also a sort of hostile <laughs> example of it because of mm, because yeah, of that. Yeah. Um, but then Song of Songs is more of the celebration of it, um, mm. as well as Ruth, which I think people are s- finally starting to understand the the more explicit nature of that book. Than, yeah, <laughs> like yeah. before, it was very it was very romanticized, but now. It's romantic, but it's just a little more realistically romantic. Right, right, um, right. So, anyways, that's that's. Yeah, I, I mean, definitely want to just hear you sort of explore that a little bit because I I don't want to feel like I'm ignoring that part or intentionally not talking about that part because yeah, it's yeah. A, a, a big part of the book. So, I mean, the, the subtitle for Song of Songs is the sexy, sexy Bible, uh, and it. <laughs> It really is, though. I mean, like, right, there's definitely yeah. bits of the Bible that are sexual and threatening and icky and awful. Um, I'm looking at you, Ezekiel. But <laughs> yes. there are also bits of it that we just forget are, I mean, people have sex with each other and they like it. Right? And it's like somehow, do we blame it on the Puritans? Do we blame it earlier than that? I don't even know. Um, but somehow, particularly in in you know, 20 and 21st century America, we have this really, I don't know, I want to call it complex. It is complex relationship to sex, but it, it presents itself as like complete abstinence. Sex doesn't exist. And it's like the Madonna whore thing, right? Like we have this over-sexualized, um, advertisement and whatever. And, and so, and then, and then the assumption is, well, it's over-sexualized, therefore it's bad. Not necessarily. I mean, you know, sex sells things because we like it. Sex is a good thing. It was given to us in creation. Yeah. <laughs> God, as, as Rob Bell says in his uh, um, Everything is Spiritual video, like, God made things that could make more things. That's so cool. Right? And how do we make more things? I mean, most of us are not asexual reproducers. We have this pleasure instinct, right? Yeah. And so I appreciate the parts of the Bible that at least refer to that, reflect on that. I mean, Song of Songs is pretty in your face about it. Um, yeah. They, they, they enjoy, the two of them enjoy each other's bodies. Um, and there's a bit where she is pretty obviously enjoying her own body. 
um, separate from him. And, but, but we somehow have this understanding of scripture as down on sex. Sex is bad. It's only for procreation. You're only, you're not supposed to enjoy it. Um, and that's just so false. That's not what it is. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so you I, I appreciate that you, that you bring up Ruth as an example of that. Um, because you're right. Like it does get kind of this, well, I said in the book, sort of the sepia toned kind of, uh, isn't it lovely that they got married and, you know, had a baby and it, and we don't think about like, how did they get that baby? Yeah. And that, and that she's, and, and the text is pretty straightforward about how they got that baby. <laughs> yeah. And um, she's, and, and she's the seducer in that book. I mean, and she's the seducer. Yeah. She's the seductor yeah. to that moment. Um, but I was thinking as you were saying that about, uh, the widow's chapter, cause that's not really what that chapter is about. Um, but at the beginning of it, I talk about um, my my friends who um, have this sort of physical intimacy. It's just just that my friend put her hand on her husband's back, and I was thinking about how she knows where all the moles on his body are, and mm-hmm. how he's sore after he's run a marathon and things like that. And how I have my husband doesn't run marathons, but how I have similar experience of his body and he of mine. <clears throat> and that's that's how couples are, right? Yeah. We, yeah. Even like there's 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 the pleasure of the sex, but like I, I do a lot of premarital counseling with young, with couple, not even young couples, just new couples. And, um, like that's one of the things we talk about is how the, the sort of the shock, the excitement, the, the giddiness, um, and, and sort of the, the lots of sex part of the early stages of a relationship is beautiful and wonderful. And it's amazing. And it's not that you don't have sex when you're an old married couple, forget all those stupid comedies on TV about how couples never have sex. Um, it becomes something different. There's an intimacy. Um, Mm -hmm. and, and that's what I'm referring to in the, in the widow's chapter. Like that's one of the reasons why we miss our partner so much when they die. Um, there's, there's like the physical pleasure of sex, but there's also like, what, what is that sex about? It's about this deep, deep connection that is bigger than the two of you. Um, and that's literally, that's why we have a strain of theology that's about, Jesus being the bridegroom and us being the bride mm-hmm. is yeah. because we see couples doing that. And we say, that's like our relationship with God is that deep, deep intimacy and how beautiful that is. And even though it's kind of weird, like bridal, that's called bridal mysticism. I mean, there's also, there's a thin line between spiritual ecstasy and sexual ecstasy. Mm-hmm. Look at the Madonna video, like a prayer, like literally <laughs> that's what she's doing. <laughs> and maybe that's weird, but it's also very real. Yeah. Um, and I, I think we do a disservice to, to ourselves as a whole, to our young people when we don't want to talk about sex with them, um, to, to each other in sort of coupled relationships to single people when we don't talk about sex in church, it's mm-hmm. a huge part of everybody's lives. And when I say, and I, you may have asexual people listening to this podcast. Hi, ace people. Nice to see you. Um, it's a big part of your life because everybody else around you is having sex. You may not be. Yeah. The point is that this is a, this is a big part of sort of the human experience. Um, and if we ignore it or if we just shame it, that's not helpful. Right. Yeah. So that's my rant or riff on that. <laughs> It's a great, yeah, it's great. Cause I, I mean, it's, it's present. Like, I mean, it's, it's present in, it's present throughout your book because it's present throughout human experience. Yeah. yeah. Um, 
And and I, again, I'm going to keep coming back to this sort of calling your calling you the the way you write. It's it's like full fleshed, full fledged. Like mm-hmm. these people are people through and through. They're not thin characters, um, and that and that's part of what makes them whole. <laughs> like is yeah. that this is not shunted this is not categorized to like this little small part of them it's you know it's it's part of it's a huge part of them so why not why yeah. not just say it like it is <laughs> like right for sure yeah um well uh man i'm really bad at segues tonight so <laughs> <laughs> when you when you hear this later you'll probably hear that there's a few um there's a few musical interludes that's fine <laughs> But I, I try to pick good music, so so I'm sure I'll pick some great like lady rockers to put in there and everything too. This is going to probably be another hard segue, just because you know your 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 book is based on all these sort of disparate characters. But yeah, I mean, sure. again, you've got all these wonderful stories. Um, I want to talk about maybe one or two more, and then we, sure. um, the other one that I I, I have a lot of under uh, I have a lot of underlines in the uh, Woman at the Well, um, mm-hmm. I, and sort of going back to our. Um, our talk about Episcopalianism and the fan club part at the beginning of the episode (laughs) of our talk here. Um, one of the things that I recently participated in was this, um, like Lent based small group. Um, and what, what it was, is it was like, a it was a small group where we'd read the next week's lectionary. Um, and one of the, one of the things that came up in Lent was this passage, um, of the woman at the well. And so we talked a lot about it. And so it's sort of been in my head for the last few months. Yeah. Um, and I really, I mean, it's really great. Just first of all, that, that you, um, emphasize that the, the longest theological discussion in the gospels is between Jesus and this woman, which, mm-hmm. um, I'd known it was a long passage and actually in the lectionary it like basically st- states most of it. <laughs> I mean, it's a long, it's a long passage um, that I think fifty or some verses that that they may, they keep almost all of it, if not all of it. Um, yeah. And that's one thing that I think is downplayed a lot is because um, we haven't really talked about the, the the gospels yet and the the women in the New Testament yet, um, just because there's so much to talk about. <laughs> but, right. Yeah, um, there is. Um, but I, I think one of the things about Jesus and one of the ways he was revolutionary is that he his behavior was by and large <laughs> egalitarian like he the women were the first witness of the resurrection he mm-hmm. elevated women in in pretty much every circumstance he could I mean I'm sure you could slice and dice a few of his a few of his interactions he, he sort of talks down if you sometimes you read and look, it sounds like he's talking down to some women yeah, at times. Yeah. But overall, he's that's one of yeah. the things that that he does. Um, he and, talks down to his disciples sometimes too. Oh yeah, he, <laughs> yeah, yeah. He's like, why the hell don't you get this? How many times do I have to go through? Guys. This? <laughs> so, um, 
Yeah. Uh, I don't know if you listened to the um, the the podcast uh, Sunday School Dropouts. No. Um, it's like the the whole thing. The I I've had the hosts on on the show, um, but they it's an ex Christian and a non believing sort of Jew. That's their <laughs> that's their tagline, and they're reading nice. through the Bible. Nice. Um, so the it's a boyfriend girlfriend, and the the girlfriend. Um, uh, why I t- I talk with her on Twitter all the time and I'm blanking on her name. I'm sorry. <laughs> She's great though. She is great. Um, she calls it uh, sarcastic Jesus. Oh, Lauren nice. O'Neill. Yeah. <laughs> Lauren yeah, yeah, O'Neill. Um, uh, yeah, sarcastic Jesus. <laughs> That's yeah, what totally. she calls it. Totally. But um, he's not uh, in this passage though. I'm like, uh, sorry for all that tangent. Um, no, 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 no. I I really like what uh, what you have to say about. Um, it's important to admit our not knowing what the hell is going on when we're mm-hmm. talking about Jesus. Um, mm-hmm. God's not some wilting flower. We push back because we care about the relationship enough to understand it and make it better. Mm-hmm. Um, and I really like that, especially in this chapter, because that's clearly what she does. She doesn't really, this woman doesn't really take any guff. <laughs> like she's just yeah. like, yeah. Um, so, so let's, yeah, since we haven't talked about the new Testament at all, let's, let's talk about this a little bit and this interaction. She's, she's fantastic. I, there, there's so many interpretations of this story because there's, there's so much to it, right? There's a lot of meat in this one story. Um, and so lots of commentators have lots of different things to say about it. Uh, Mm -hmm. and I'm not really saying any of them are wrong, um, it's just that as, as you were saying, sort of this idea of putting meat on the people and having them be actual people, um, even though spoilers, probably a lot of these folks didn't actually exist. I'm not talking about Jesus here. I'm talking about like, well, whatever. <laughs> Let, let's not talk about that right now. Uh, no, the point fine. is, you know, did the woman at the well actually exist? I don't know. Um, I don't but that's think, not the point. Yeah, like putting, putting eh. right, right. right. <laughs> I mean, putting, putting the meat on her bones and saying like she at, at the very least stands in for somebody for, for us. Um, you know, she doesn't, she doesn't have to be a metaphor for all the different, um, foreign alliances that Israel has made over the years. Right. Okay. That's absolutely one interpretation. And there's certainly, gosh, I can't, I think it was the middle ages though. I could be making that up. Uh, there was an era of the church in which, uh, the, the, the idea was that one, uh, interpret scripture through multiple lenses simultaneously. So you have the layer of literalism for sure. I mean, here's the story. What does the story say? Um, but then that's not where you stop. Then there's the next level down, which is sort of allegory. And then there's another, and there's like five different levels or something. Mm -hmm. So it's not bad to look at it that way, right? Like there's some, there's some truth that can be found in obviously in reading it that way, but the text doesn't care about the number of her husband's. Like he says, bring your husband. She says, I don't have one. He says, that's true. You don't have one. You had five husbands and the one you have now isn't your own. So there's like this little back and forth about it. It's not, it's the text doesn't care in the sense that there is nothing made of that. We don't know what he's referring to. She doesn't clarify it. She's like, Oh, you're right. Listen, I can tell there's something going on with you. I have some questions and it like immediately skims into that. And Many interpreters sort of have this, and I read a lot of commentaries. I mean, I I already read them before, but I read them in preparation for writing this. And so many of them have this sort of condescending attitude towards her. Like she could not possibly have understood what he was saying. 
when he talks about living water. Hmm. Um, she could not really understand what he meant about worshiping in spirit and truth. She could not really get it because she's just a woman. They, very few of them actually say because she's just a woman, but that's, that's what they mean. <laughs> you know, like how, how could she have understood this? She clearly did. She's sitting there talking to him. <laughs> like she was there and, and she gets like, Oh yeah. Like, like, I guess my point is it's important in all situations, like we were talking about before, to ask what else could this mean, right? So like the, the complexity of the interpretation of the story is important. Absolutely. Set that aside for just a moment and say, also, we don't have to interpret away her agency here. He says, give me some water. She says, uh, what did she say? You don't have a bucket. So I can't remember exactly how it goes. Uh, and he's like, oh, oh, no, he says, I'll give you living water. And she says, sir, you don't have a bucket. Um, and like, we, we're, we're meant to understand that she's so totally stupid and it's like, Oh, you don't have a bucket. How can you give me the water? <laughs> but that's not what she says. And he says, Oh, I have this living water that you'll never be thirsty again. And she's like, Oh, okay. Like, why can't we, why can't we take her seriously and say, she got it. Yeah. All right. Give me this living water. I'm ready. Let's go. Um, <laughs> It's just, it, it frustrates me that the, the sort of go-to is she couldn't possibly understand. When she has the longest conversation and really the most theologically complex conversation that he has, um, maybe barring, say, Pilot, but I think Pilot was just being a dick. So <laughs> that one's up for interpretation. Um, the dick interpretation. Yeah. When, you know, <laughs> what is truth? Like, he doesn't care. He's the, he's the dude with the privilege. He's having a, an interesting intellectual conversation with somebody who's going to die the next day. So it doesn't really matter. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I think I think most, if not all of these women, I will say all of these women have agency. We don't tend to read their stories that way. Maybe because even now in 2017, we don't really think women have agency. Or maybe it's not gendered. Maybe just we don't think that someone other than us has agency. <laughs> you know, I, I know what I'm doing. And I'm right because my view on the world is accurate. But you don't. Clearly she doesn't. Clearly that guy doesn't. I'm being a little bit grumpy here about this. Um, <laughs> but it has to do with what we were talking about earlier. I don't remember if we were recording or if it was before the conversation started. But... Um, just about this idea of how, how important it is to listen to each other and take each other seriously. You know, we, we talked about that yeah. to, to, to take the other person's story seriously, that, that, that in fact is their experience right? instead of jumping in to say, no, that's, that's not really what happened. You must've misinterpreted that. Um, that's not what they meant. Yeah. Um, why not take her seriously? Yeah. She knew what was going on. Yeah. Yeah, and she she went and told other people about it. <laughs> yeah, she got it. <laughs> yeah, way faster than the dudes he surrounded himself with did. <laughs> Which doesn't make women better. Like, I really want to be clear about this. I I have a handful of comments on the book trailer um, that's posted on Facebook. Um, it's it's got a ton of views, but. Uh, like there's, there's a handful of comments. First of all, I find it very interesting that, um, 
most of the likes on it are from women. Mm-hmm. And most of the comments are from men that are negative. And I don't think that means men are bad and women are good or anything like, I don't want it's, to, it's not helpful to make it that simplistic. Um, I think it's interesting that allowing these women to have agency and allowing to allowing their stories to be complex feels threatening yeah. to some, right. Um, and it's, and probably across gender, um, you know, as, as I've said sort of sarcastically in other podcasts, like men are people too. This is for everyone. Um, it literally is for everyone, right? This, this is not just for your women's book group. Yeah. Um, yeah. Like, I'm not, I'm not. Yeah. I, yeah. Oh, I know you, I know you know that. Oh no, no, no. <laughs> I know. I know. But I'm, I'm, I'm even saying like, I recommend this to anyone regardless yeah. of gender. Like, yeah. like, I mean, I, I have a good friend. I'm totally um, with you. <laughs> I have a good friend who works at uh, another church in town and, um, we, got together. Gosh, when was this? Like January, I think. I don't remember. We, we got together to have a drink. Um, he wanted to pick my brain because he was leading a men's retreat and he had decided that the, the men's retreat was going to be about feminism, why men need feminism. Mm. Um, and he had a ton of people signed up. It was going to be great. I, I think it did go well. I, I forgot to follow up with him. Now I think about it. Um, but, uh, you know, we, we were talking about this idea that like feminism or, even if, if that word is difficult for you, just like empowering and listening to the stories of women is not just for women. It is for everyone because we are all people. And as I, I talk about in the introduction, um, for whatever reason over the centuries, um, we have this sense that women's stories are for women in, in scripture and the men's stories are universal. What do we say when we talk about um, the God of Israel? God of Israel is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. What about Sarah and Rachel and Rebecca and Leah? You know, yeah. like, they were there. Right, um, right. And they, it wouldn't have happened without them. Yeah. Right? At the very least, it wouldn't have happened without them. Um, and like, well, those, those are the big name stories. Like, those are the guys who, who, you know, said the words, did the things. Well, those are the stories we have, Right. The, just the point being, it was a long way to describe that. <laughs> the point being uh, that I, and I am a woman, so maybe I'm biased. I don't think I am. Um, these stories are, in fact, universal. Absolutely, you know, yeah. You personally may not go through childbirth, but you do understand the idea of creation. You understand the idea of new life. You understand the idea of loss and of loneliness, Um of justice, of misery. Like these are all concepts that we all get. Right. Yeah. And I, I think, yeah, I I think that (laughs) that is, it's absolutely, it's absolutely valid. And it's, I think it's valid to speaking to, to fellow, to speaking to other white men like me, Mm -hmm. it's valid for other people to be frustrated that within, within like our moment in history that like the white male, um, experience is the one that's, that's expressed and intended to be universal. Like, I mean, if you just look back from the beginning, if you, you could go back forever, but even if you just wanted to look at, um, 
you know, television and movies from the 50s to now. Like, let's just look at that snapshot. I mean, it's primarily white men in leads. Um, and that's why that is why um, things like representation are so important to so many people. Because it's not about, it's not about, you know, checking a box because to maybe to right, a, maybe right. to a white person they might see it as as checking a box but it's mm-hmm. about mm-hmm. making those stories as universal as every other story yeah. and well, i think to, that's and, absolutely yeah, I was, valid I was, I was just gonna say in the, the mary chapter i talk about um her the magnificat and that <clears throat> to people in power whoever that is um to, to the people with the privilege equality looks like a threat right it yeah. looks like losing something um, and yeah. Yeah. And I, it's I, hard. yeah, to, to bring back another like comic book example, like it's why, yes. um, it's why something like Wonder Woman is so freaking amazing. Like, so good. <laughs> I just, I just saw it today. So I'm like yes. super, super high on it. But yes. like that, I mean, we that, could talk about the myth of redemptive violence and how problematic that is, particularly in Wonder Woman's story. However, it's an amazing movie. Everyone should go see. <laughs> yes. Yeah, um, she's a and uh, talk about a complicated character. She is a warrior and a mission, a missionary of peace. Like yes, like, exactly, like an ambassador of peace. Like that's woven into her yeah. her DNA as a character, mm-hmm. which is super interesting. And it's a universal story. But to mm-hmm. your point, it's been one that's been suppo- sidelined mm-hmm. for being supposedly just for women. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, but that's why things like upcoming stories. Uh, things like black Panther things, Mm. all sorts of things like that. Those things of representation are also the validation of the universality of their stories and Mm -hmm. also the validation of a particular story. Yeah. Like that a particular story is just as valuable as one. that's not like Captain America, Superman, Batman, like all these white guys (laughs) running around in in their underwear. (laughs) Like let some other but somebody else run around in their underwear. Like <laughs> it's fun, right? <laughs> so, anyways, I will not speak to that. That's well, uh, spandex, whatever it is. Whatever. I'm just making a joke. <laughs> uh, so, but but yeah, I I I I think your your comment about um this sort of response on. <laughs> on your book trailer is, is damning and yeah. also not surprising. And that makes it sad. <laughs> like, yeah, and that's where, that's where, that's where, we, you know, we need to keep acknowledging people to, as people. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, right. um, so yeah. And, and I think your book is just a wonderful example of that. <laughs> Thank <laughs> so you. You're, Thank you're you. welcome. So I, yeah, I, I, I think it's a wonderful example of people doing their like doing their best, you know, and people interacting with God and um, whatever they understand to be God, and mm-hmm. and enlightening and entertaining in great like just human ways, like mm-hmm. it's, mm-hmm. it's quintessential human. Um, yeah, and I I think that's what's sort of great about what you've discovered and uh, you know unearthed again for people. Mm-hmm. Um, in the script, you know, people that are in the scriptures, which, uh, you know, that's not, 
people have a complicated relationship with the Bible, rightfully sure. so. Um, but this is a great way to to yeah. to figure out why these stories have been so sustainable, why they've had legs for so long. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, um, yeah. so. Um, so yeah, I just really want to thank you for, for, for coming and onto the show and, and talking. Yeah, thanks for me. having me on. Um, where can people find you online? What's, um, or elsewhere? I want to make sure you can plug your stuff. Tell us where you can buy your book, all of that. Online or elsewhere. <laughs> well, I live in Cincinnati. Please don't stalk me. <laughs> um, I won't tell you where it's a big city. Uh, online, you can find me at, um, fierceasswomen.com. Uh, is my website and it has all the other various uh, contact information there. But uh, the trailer is on Facebook. I have an author page that is Alice Connor, not to be confused with my personal page, which is also Alice Connor. <laughs> a little confusing to find the author page. Um, <laughs> and um, I have a Twitter feed, Pastor Alice, um, my Pinterest board that I used for inspiration for the book is on that website as well. Oh, cool. It's pretty nice. cool. There's some really amazing art out there about of, of women in the Bible, but also I pulled all kinds of other things that just were inspiring to me about yeah. those women. We didn't even mention the illustrations in the book. The illustrations yes. are amazing. <laughs> the oh, thank you. The illustrations are amazing. My husband did them. He is fantastic. They're great. Yes. Thank you for that. Yeah. <laughs> he's, he's pretty great about it. Um, he was, he was a, a team player when I asked him to do it. <laughs> he got a little grumpy with me partway through, but <laughs> we persisted. That's Nevertheless, great. we persisted. Great. Well, Alice, thank you very much for, for coming on the show. I really thank you. It.